Would you please make your way with me this morning in your Bibles to the second chapter of the Gospel according to Mark, where we will be looking together this morning at verses 1 through 12. That's Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, and you can find that passage on page 981 in your pew Bibles. Last week we looked together at that beautiful picture that we find there at the end of the first chapter of Mark's gospel account, where Jesus has what I referred to as a rather shocking encounter with a man who we are told is full of leprosy. And hopefully you'll remember it was shocking for several reasons. First, quite simply stated, it was not at all a normal scene in this culture. In fact, it was far from it. Lepers were not just walking casually and freely through the towns. They were declared outsiders. They were societal and social outcasts. The Levitical law itself did not allow them to be in the towns walking around freely or casually. No mercy was even extended towards the one who was suffering in the grip of this devastating disease. The fact that this man, who Luke tells us in chapter 5 of his account, is full of leprosy, the fact that this man then would make his way to Jesus Christ, that is, that he would place himself in very close personal proximity to Jesus Christ and to these crowds that are gathered, is actually quite shocking. It just simply was not done. It would have caused no small degree of panic in the crowd to see this man approach, let alone to see him fall down at the feet of Jesus in order to plead for his relief. And it's shocking, isn't it? And then there's the man's address to Jesus itself. It's also shocking. He's not asking whether or not Jesus can heal him. He says, I know that you can make me clean if you are willing. He acknowledges that Jesus certainly can make him clean. He is God. I'm not going to rehash that again this morning other than to point out that it really is a shocking confession for this man to make. He acknowledges in the front of God and witnesses that he's speaking to one who possesses power over sickness and health. Then we consider what Jesus did regarding this man. He doesn't run for cover. He does not remind this man that this was not his place to be here where all of the healthy people were standing about, standing around him. That he was to be and to remain outside of the town, outside of the camp, warning everyone with his unkept, disheveled appearance and his constant crying out of that awful refrain, unclean, unclean, reminding people not to come within even a hundred feet of himself. There's no sting of rebuke here for his reckless actions. 
You understand what he's doing is clearly not a good thing, at least not what is best for the rest of the community that he had been separated from. No, Jesus seeing the horrific, the horrific effects of the fall upon this man, this man who was originally created in his image, marred, disfigured beyond belief, Jesus is moved with righteous indignation. He is moved with grace-filled pity, and he does the unthinkable. He reaches out, and he touches this man and heals him. I told you the word in the Greek there actually means that he reaches out and he grasps this man. The picture is that Jesus reaches out and he takes this disease-ridden leper by the shoulders and he says to him, I will be clean. And of course, the man is healed. We could go on and on this morning with all the things about this passage that shock us. It's, It's a shocking encounter and it should be. We see the shocking parallels here to Jesus and his gospel. We spoke of it last week. You and I are spiritual lepers. You understand we are decaying. We are dead in sins and trespasses. We are lifeless shells of disfigurement without hope of obtaining anything like healing in and of ourselves. And yet Jesus Christ and His mercy draws us towards Himself as we are. He bids us to come and to find relief from our greatest problem. He calls us to come and to find life in Him. And of course, He comforts us. He unites us through faith, faith that He gives. He unites us to His his life, His death, and His resurrection. And we, being blessedly cleansed for eternity, live joyfully for eternity. We live in Him by faith. And it's shocking. It's a shocking message, isn't it? Christianity is nothing like all of the other religions of the world in this very regard. No one is simply wiping the slate clean and giving you a do-over. No one is giving us the rules in order that we will follow them to the T and earn grace. That we would follow those rules and earn forgiveness. No one is calling you to a merit-based system where you put in your hard work and you earn your own way. No, in Christianity, I want you to understand, beloved, God God Himself comes and He does the unthinkable. He does it all for you. He stands in your place. He takes the penalty that you have earned in your sin. His whole life leads him nearer and nearer to the cross. Where he will take your sin and your penalty and pay what you cannot ever pay. He receives upon himself the very wrath of Almighty God against your sin. And he does not give you a mere do-over. He gives you his perfection. He gives you his unmarked, spotless, perfect righteousness. And he declares you innocent for eternity 
in him, it is shocking. And we were reminded of it as Jesus essentially traded places, so to speak, with this leper. He took on his solitude. He took on his outcast status. He took his shame and his loneliness and he restored the leper to a life of blessed, accepted, even joyful, loving social community. A community where he will be loved and cared for and not simply run away from. It's shocking, beloved, and it is part of the wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ. It's why we are here this morning. And even as Mark begins to switch gears here just a bit in the passage that is before us this morning in the opening verses of this second chapter, we're going to find that Mark never loses sight of his mission. I've repeated it again and again. His mission, quite simply, is to get you before Jesus. To get before you the biblical Jesus. His person, His work, His grace, His power, His authority, His gospel, His kingdom. And Mark will not be deterred. And in this passage before us this morning, Mark begins to unpack for us the first of what will be five acts that point us towards a brewing controversy in the life of Jesus Christ. He is going to be opposed by the perceived authorities of his day. This is the first of five confrontations that Mark wants us to see that take place between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. And I want to reiterate here that Mark is staying on point. This has everything to do with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and His Gospel. And So as we move now into what I'm sure is a very familiar passage for many, if not for all of us, we have to keep that mission in mind. And I hope to challenge a lot of conventional wisdom regarding this particular narrative this morning and open up for us the distinct possibility that here in this text, We have much more than perhaps we see at first glance going on. This is, of course, another miracle. It's another healing performed by Jesus Christ in the presence of many witnesses. Another act of mercy and compassion met out upon all those who have suffered under the severity of the effects of the fall. It certainly is all of those things. However, beloved, I believe that what Mark is beginning to unpack for us here has much more to do with yet another aspect of the gospel. And that is that that as the declared children of the Most High God, we must come to grips with it. And it is biblical faith. Biblical saving faith. So let us now turn our collective attention to the Word of God this morning. I'd like you to follow along as I read Mark chapter 2, again reading verses 1 through 12. Hear now the Word of our Lord. And again, he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. 
And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down on the bed, the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, he took up the bed, and he went out in the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful again this morning as we come to your word. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit. We pray that you would allow us to focus on the truth of your word, that you would clear away the many things that distract us in this life, that we would give our full attention to the wonderful truth of the gospel and hearing it, that we would be transformed by it for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned to you just a moment ago, I believe that this is probably a very familiar story to many, if not to all of us this morning. My guess is that you've probably heard it brought up in Sunday school lessons as children, or perhaps you've heard it addressed by one of many misinformed Bible teachers somewhere along the way in your life. You've heard the message, right? This is what it takes. You need to have the faith of these men and you need to get your friends, you need to get your families to Jesus. And do not be deterred. These men would not be stopped. Because they had the faith to get there, Jesus had to just heal this man, right? So faith becomes the equivalent of really believing in yourself and what you've set out to do. And then if that belief is acted upon, God becomes obligated to open up the floodgates of spiritual blessing and bless you and your loved ones. Have you heard that before? If not that version, my guess, beloved, is that we've heard at least something like that version. And again, it's an unfortunate description for what Mark is telling us here. Because that version, I believe, has precious little to do with the powerful, transforming grace of Almighty God that Mark is telling us invades our lives in the gospel. To be sure, there are some truths to what I said is generally believed. However, it simply does not tell the whole story. 
The story is about the invading grace of Almighty God and the empty hand of faith that receives it. And I want for us to see a few things here about the faith that Mark is describing as an integral part of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And I hope that we will come to see the action that results from that kind of faith this morning. Faith will drive us to Jesus Christ. It will deliver us to the only solution for what truly ails us. And that faith is received by the grace of Almighty God upon the authority of God himself. And that's what Mark wants us to see here. So we need to dig in. The Heidelberg Catechism describes true biblical faith for us in question and answer number 21. And I'm sure it's one that many of us are very familiar with. Right? What is true faith? I want you to listen to how it answers this critical question in the Christian life. True faith is not only a sure knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a hearty trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel that not only to others, but to me also, forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation are freely given by God merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. Now that is a comprehensive explanation or definition of our understanding of biblical faith. Faith is both a knowing and a trusting. It's not simply knowing. And it's not merely blindly trusting or wishing. It's a knowing that leads to trusting. And of course we see that played out for us in this text that is before us this morning. There is both knowing that moves us towards trusting, which consequently moves us toward acting upon that knowledge and trust. And I think we see it here with the four friends of this paralytic in this narrative. And there is a knowing that does not lead to trusting, but in fact leads to vehemently disliking or even outright hatred of the truth. And we see that with these scribes that Mark tells us about here in chapter 2 the religious authorities of the day. So faith is more than just knowing about. It is knowing something as it is, as it has been revealed, which leads us to acting and trusting in light of that knowledge. We see it here with these four friends. Faith in them is doing something. You understand, it doesn't just lie dormant. It does not exhaust itself with that endless endless array of what-ifs. It does not become overwhelmed with the fear of the unknown. No, beloved, faith does what faith must. It runs to Jesus Christ. Faith is the empty hand that receives from the hand of God every single blessing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the channel that these truths run towards our hearts and consequently 
our own transformation. We have to see that here. Look at these friends. They must get their loved one to Jesus. Now perhaps you're saying, well, yeah, of course they do. How is that any different from what you described at the beginning of this sermon? How do we know that they're taking him to come face to face with the God who is? And not merely looking for another miracle like so many of the other people who were flocking to Jesus Christ, looking for a little bit of magic, a little bit of of wizardry and relief, but they weren't looking for redemption. Well, I will tell you that the text tells us what we need to know. Mark doesn't leave it out. These four know that Jesus will know what this friend truly needs. They themselves do not ask him for anything. They have no back and forth with this man, this paralytic that we know of, or that's at least recorded for us to know. They have no back and forth with Jesus himself. They do what faith must do. They get to the one whom they are dependent upon. They just know that faith within them is driving them to get this man in front of Jesus Christ. That's what they know. Which, by the way, is exactly what faith does. It drives us to Jesus Christ. It compels us towards the Savior who possesses eternal life and heals us from what truly ails us. There is also the fact here that Jesus, that is God incarnate, recognizes what in these friends? Is it gumption? Is it determination? Is it a great work ethic? That these guys are willing to tear off the roof to get this guy in front of Jesus? No, what does he recognize? Faith. Jesus recognizes faith. Not because of their resolve. Not because of their perseverance. I think that we make those presumptions upon a text such as this one because we tell ourselves that that's what we would have seen. Let us not forget who this one is that these men are desperately trying to get their friend in front of. This is the King of Kings. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and the finisher of faith. Do you understand? We really do not need any further proof than that, do we? That this is what's going on. Jesus Christ, the author of faith itself, recognizes clearly what he himself has given and he acts upon it. You understand what I'm saying? These men were graciously compelled by faith to get this man in front of Jesus, in front of this crowd. That's what's going on. And nothing would stop them because Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, was calling them to that very task. 
Crowds are pushing in to the degree that they cannot even draw near enough to even be seen by Jesus. And so they look for another way. And looking, they make their way up onto the roof of the house. Now you understand, this roof was not something like we would recognize. This is not rafters and plywood and shingles. More than likely, it's a flat roof where those who lived in the house would go up to get some fresh air and from time to time to receive company, even to entertain friends and loved ones. They served in many ways like our own front porches would or even the decks behind our houses serve today. And it's believed that what these faithful friends had to do was go up there and then remove probably some clay tiles and begin to dig through the sun-hardened mud and the thatch so that they could remove some of the support beams underneath and then lower their friend down directly in front of Jesus Christ. So you can picture Jesus standing there teaching and the, the crumbles from the ceiling begin falling down. The daylight begins to shower in. Jesus looks up and he recognizes the faith that drove these men to this task. And so he looks at the paralyzed man in front of the crowd and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. It brings us to the second thing here about faith that I think we must see. Faith delivers us to the only solution to our greatest problem. It's part of knowing and trusting what God has revealed. Man is fallen in Adam and thus under the curse. The image of God has been horribly disfigured in man. It's been marred beyond belief. And it is faith that opens our eyes so that we know it. We know it to be true and we trust that God is true and every man a liar and we act accordingly and we throw ourselves upon the mercy of Jesus Christ. We look to the promise of God and the person and the work of Jesus Christ and we rejoice at what faith finds there. And Mark highlights it here so that we cannot miss it. And so I ask you, beloved, do you see it? If this narrative was just a narrative about Jesus taking compassion upon this man and his awful condition of paralysis, we would need none other than the narrative. We would need none of the other narrative here. The sick would simply come to Jesus and he would heal them. We see that other places. But this is more than that. Look at what Jesus says. He does not immediately look upon this poor man in this awful state and say to him, rise, take up your bed and go home. That's not how he begins this conversation. He says, son, your sins are forgiven you. Beloved, we must see this. Jesus is speaking from a place of absolute authority. He addresses this man in a way that shows his authority over him, calling him son. And he gets to the heart of the matter by first and foremost dealing with this man's greatest problem. Which, by the way, 
was not paralysis. It was his heart. This man is removed from communion with the Father. He desperately needs to be reconciled to God and he currently can only stake claim to being his sworn enemy. And Jesus knows it. Beloved, do you see that here? I think if you're like me, we're all on the inside in this scene. We're all thinking, Jesus, heal this man. Look at the lengths they went through to get him in front of you. Would you just heal him already? The man is probably thinking that what he needs more than anything else is to have his legs actually work properly. Ending his dependence upon everyone else. Even his faithful friends acting under the compulsion of supernatural faith want undoubtedly to see the Lord Jesus Christ heal their friend. And this is important. Jesus is not concerned with theirs or our felt needs in this situation. This is a life and death situation. And he in true mercy places his healing touch where this man needs it most and he forgives his sin. And he restores him to child of God, friend of God's status. And the truth is, nothing else matters at this point. This man's greatest dilemma in his own mind might be his sickness in the immediate context. But Jesus moves past the temporal, past the worldly, past the temporary maladies, and he focuses in on the thing that this man needs above all else. The grace of Almighty God. Forgiveness. Restoration. Do you view life this way? Do you understand? His sickness is an earthly problem. But Jesus goes well beyond it and he satisfies his debt for eternity. Beloved, I want to ask you, do you see what faith does here? Let me put it another way so that we we must see it. Randy touched on it this morning in Sunday school, if you were in Sunday school. I want you to understand what's actually going on here, so I can't say it any clearer than this. God, in His mercy, in an act of wonderful, exhilarating providence, moves, as it were, heaven and earth to bring this man to Jesus and have his desperate need relieved. That's what's going on. That's what's going on in your life. When you come to redemption, God moves heaven and earth. He compels you with faith that He gives to run to Jesus and to find life. That's what faith does. 
It drives us to Jesus who alone has power on earth to forgive sin. It opens your eyes and your ears to the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and His wonderful gospel. It drives you to answers that you are not looking for, but that you desperately need. Beloved, can you relate to this? I want to ask you, how many of us, even this very week, found ourselves in that familiar place of second-guessing the Lord of glory? Why does God not see my problem in this life? Why does He let me hear of the death of a loved one or a bad prognosis from my doctor? Why does God not care that I cannot sleep at night because of the worry and the fear and the anxiety that plagues my life? Why does He not see that I I desperately need my health? I desperately need more money. I desperately need less anger, less marital strife, less problems at work, less issues with my church and my pastor. I need, I need, I need, and God is silent. That's what we tell ourselves. Why? Because, beloved, what we need, above all else, is to be reconciled to the God who is. And having that, who cares? about our four score or so years that we spend on this earth. God has eternity in view. He has my eternal well-being in view. Not just my flash in the pan of an earthly existence. I need eternity with Jesus. I need His forgiveness. I need His righteousness. Praise be to God, the glorious message of the gospel is that He gives it. Which is exactly why Jesus has sent faith into the hearts of these men for this moment in time. People see it and they marvel. But you understand, God has his eyes on more than just this man, this paralytic. He's got his eyes on more than even just these friends who are moved by faith to get this man in front of Jesus. He's teaching even the obstinate hearts of these religious rulers, the scribes, to their own condemnation. Follow the logic of these scribes and their response right we know what they're doing they're lying in wait waiting for Jesus to step out of line waiting for him to break the law which includes in their minds their own vain traditions and they hear him say very clearly that he forgives this man of his sin and they think we have him They reason not aloud with one another, not with the crowds that are gathered around them, but they reason, we're told, in their own wicked hearts. And the God-man, Jesus Christ, calls them on what they are thinking. Do you notice that here? 
Look at what he says to them. He says, in effect, your own logic proves too much. I forgive sins and you say in your hearts, who can forgive sins but God himself? This man blasphemes. Who indeed? That's the answer. Who can forgive sins but God himself? That's the truth. God himself can forgive sins. Jesus speaks to the war going on in these men's hearts and their minds, and he says, in effect, who indeed? His deity is on full glorious display before them. He says, which is easier in your eyes? That I say to this man, your sins are forgiven you, or I say, rise up and walk? And look at why Jesus does what he does here. He tells us. He's not healing this man because he believes that that is the thing that this man so desperately needs in his life. To have his health back. He's not healing this man because he has taken all of the right steps in order to obligate Jesus into action on his behalf. He's not healing this man because this man's morality is better than everyone else's morality in all of Capernaum. No, Mark tells you why. Look at the why. So that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. That's the why. These men's own logic ought to lead them to deduce that because clearly this one has the power to forgive, he is therefore God himself. But they don't see it. As I mentioned at the outset this morning, this is but the first of five conflicts that Mark is going to be bringing before us from the start of this second chapter going all the way well into the sixth verse of the third chapter. And all of them have something to say to the eyes of faith. They also have something to say to unbelief. So beloved, I ask you, do you see the action of faith this morning? Has faith led you to this Jesus for healing and for wholeness and for the forgiveness of sin? Mark wants you to see it. He's bringing before you the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it faith that drives your worship this morning? Beloved, I know I ask that question a lot. I do. And it's because I love you. And I want for you to ask yourself, why are you here in the house of God? Here in this church, listening to this sermon. Is it because you long to taste of the salvation that only Jesus can give? Is it because you long to sing praises to the God who heals your diseases, who makes you whole, who fills you with His perfection? Is it because you are truly thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ? Beloved, I ask again because I love you and I want to be clear with you, any other reason is not a good one. 
If you're here because it's just what you have done for your whole life, you're not here for the right reason. You're settling for something less than Jesus. If you're here because you think that you need to keep this place on track, you're here for the wrong reason. If you're here because you hope to fix it, to make the church more like you would like it to be, you're here for the wrong reason. Beloved, we need to be here because faith longs for the nourishment of Jesus Christ and His gospel. That's why we gather together for worship. Faith must be here. It must get to Jesus. It is compelled to run to Jesus Christ and find life. Faith must have more and more of Jesus Christ and His gospel. Do you see? Only God has the authority to reconcile you and to heal your wounds for eternity. And the beauty of the gospel that Mark is so painstakingly laying before your eyes here in in this book, is that he has certainly done exactly that in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you come? Will you come to him? Will you humble yourself before him and drink deeply from the fount of every blessing? Will faith in you reach out the empty hand? bringing nothing but sin and shame and pain and sickness and misery and strife, bringing nothing with it but guilt and fear and doubt. And embrace the Lord Jesus Christ and His gospel and live gratefully before Him for the rest of your days. Beloved, that is precisely what faith is does do you recognize its precious work on your own heart this morning if you do then praise God praise God praise him in his sanctuary praise him with your life let's pray